This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington, and welcome to another episode of Late Boomers. Today, we are pleased to have with us a very special guest, Jay Rosenzweig, global human rights activist, leadership strategist, and expert negotiator and founder of Rosenzweig & Company. And I'm Mary Elkins. We're so interested in talking with Jay about his wide range of interests and about the many purpose-driven boards he sits on and about how he's such a powerful advocate against racism and anti-Semitism. Welcome, Jay. So happy to be here. Thank you to both of you. Thanks. Some of your titles probably didn't exist when you joined the workforce. Can you tell us what a social impact entrepreneur is and how you arrived at that in your life? Yeah, so uh, perhaps the best thing for me to do is give you a little bit of uh, a background um, of uh, how I got there. And I'm Canadian by background. Uh, I'm, I'm born and raised in Montreal. And I studied at McGill University. I did a philosophy degree and two law degrees at the uh, at, at the university and, and met a really important mentor in the law school. His name is Erwin Kotler, and he's an international human rights champion. He represented people like Nelson Mandela and Natan Sharansky back in the day and went on to become Canada's attorney general and minister of justice, where he enacted all kinds of progressive laws and freed more people who were wrongfully convicted in one year. It was that more than any of the previous ministers combined, was the first man on the Women's Caucus, um, transformed our Supreme Court into the most gender representative in the world. And I mentioned that because all of these things inspired me. And if you fast forward to today, I'm the chair of the board of his human rights organization. It's called the Raul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. And we are representing the Nelson Mandela's of today all around the world. Sadly, there's a lot of them. And combating racism and hate in all its forms. But I'll get back to that. So to rewind, when I graduated, I moved to Toronto and I worked at the law firm that probably most prominently represented people who were wrongfully convicted. And at the time, DNA technology was becoming more and more reliable. So thankfully for that, um, in, in a lot of cases, the, um, they were able to be successful in, in, uh, in reversing wrongful convictions. But eventually I got into the business world in the world of executive talent management, executive team building, talent strategy with a boutique firm um, that I helped grow to the point where Corn Ferry, the largest firm in the world um, bought us, which was a great experience for me. Young guy, firm was acquired. Suddenly I'm one of the youngest partners globally at the world's largest firm. And uh, that was great. I stayed on for a few years, leveraging off of the brand, but. I'm kind of an entrepreneur by nature. It's in my blood. It's sort of where I come from. 
And uh, because of that, and because I thought I could serve my clients better if I brought them customized solutions, I decided to break away and start my own firm. And I've been lucky, the vision's been realized. We're now doing work all around the world, uh, working for some of the biggest companies in the world at the top levels, helping private equity firms change out leadership post acquisition. And um, also I've been doing a lot of work helping founders to scale up their businesses. And in that regard, I'm not only helping them with things like team building and, and talent strategy, but also just given all the connections I've been so fortunate to have been able to develop over the years, I'm helping them with things like fundraising and business development and just overall strategic and operational advice. And it's gotten to the point now where uh, I'm on the advisory board of dozens of businesses, mostly across California, New York, and Toronto. We've had some amazing exits. We, you know, we're on the verge of IPOs and exits uh, moving forward. Um, but what I'm most interested in, and it's a long-winded way of answering your question, is um, the intersection of profit and purpose. Um, and that's, you know, that's why I would describe myself in those terms as a social impact entrepreneur, because what I found over the years is the best way to get things done is um, through business-oriented, profit-oriented, profit-driven, business-minded ways of, of helping our world. And I can give you many, many examples of that. So not only am I in the philanthropic world and in the business world, but I get and derive great joy in, in combining the two. And I find that's where you could, you could affect the most possible change. Hmm. That's uh, very, great. very impressive. Um, can you tell us, we know that you are a leadership strategist and how does that play into what you've just said and into your career? Yes, so my core business is, is helping companies uh, build out world-class teams and that involves uh, talent strategy, um, but it's all interconnected. So when I'm, for example, uh, on the advisory board of an earlier stage business, helping a founder to scale up, inevitably one of the most important pieces is, okay, what should my team look like? You know, when should I begin bringing in uh, what they call C-level executives, chief financial officer, chief operating officer, chief technology officer, at a certain point in time, even chief executive officer. So very naturally, as I have shares in and, uh, and, and, and advising businesses, the, the business ultimately will funnel back into my core uh, area of expertise in business, which is the, the recruiting side. But even on the more senior, uh, the, the, the more mature businesses, like the big multinationals, uh, $60 billion uh, financial services company approached me a while back to say, we need a head of digital reporting into the CEO. Um, and we need a candidate who can play well in the corporate world and understands the complexities of the corporate world, but also has their finger on the pulse of the future of technology the future of innovation. And my argument that I was able to make when pitching against my other big firm competitors was I personally mirror that, given that I'm doing the corporate work and, and also have my finger on the pulse of, of early stage tech and therefore um, would, would probably be best positioned to help you in that regard. So 
it's all interrelated and interconnected in, in, in ways that um, are both uh, stimulating and beneficial to me, but also to the clients and founders that I, that I help. Wow, that, that really explains it very well. Thank you. And you're, you are also internationally recognized for your immersion in global human rights causes. What do you <laughs> think are the greatest challenges facing the world today? Oh, there's so many. Unfortunately, um, the the Uyghur tragedy in in China is one that that we've been uh, advocating against. Um, unfortunately, uh, racism has been rearing its ugly head uh, locally and globally. Uh, Anti-Asian hate is is sadly on the rise. I mean, there's so many areas that need, need attention and support. Um, what I've done is I'm on the board of um, uh, an organization called Black North. So in the aftermath of the George Floyd tragedy, what happened was um, a good friend of mine, Wes Hall, a very successful business person here in Canada, decided to start uh, an organization called Black North. and. Part of the purpose of the uh, Black North Initiative is to empower those who have historically been blocked or disadvantaged, uh, specifically the Black community. And we've gotten hundreds of Canadian companies to sign a pledge to do better as regards um, Black executives and their leadership ranks. Um, and uh, so what I've decided to do is um, combine forces and bring the black community and the Jewish community together, given the fact that there's been uh, a terrible rise in anti-Semitism as well. And we pulled together a statement and press release um, that the Jewish community and black communities stand together in solidarity against anti-Semitism, racism, and hate in all its forms. And we look forward to all kinds of initiatives that we're working on together. We have a conference call tomorrow along those lines. So I think um, education and bringing people together and, and, and having those that have historically been discriminated against working together and not at cross purposes can be very powerful moving forward. That's a very good solution. Interesting view of yeah. it. Yeah, in a way, it sounds like what they did a while back between the Arabs and Israelis, where they brought them together, brought young people together. Is yeah. it anything like that, where you'll bring people together and and have and you know into social personal social networking? Yes, absolutely. It's all about empathy. It's all about understanding that um, we're, we're much more uh, the same than we are different. Each of us uh, wants to be loved. Each of us wants to have, uh, you know, a, a decent meal uh, on the table and, and, uh, and, and have inner peace. And the more we can interact with one another, the more we could realize that we're much more similar than different. Um, I did a, an interesting, uh, I'm, I'm in the midst of an interesting project right now for a company called Empatico, which is um, uh, a nonprofit organization uh, established by uh, Daniel Lebetsky of Kind Bars, Kind Snacks. Um, and he's always grappled with the issues of hate and, and the dangers of genocide and dangers of hate speech, um, some of his family. Uh, perished in the Holocaust, and um, studies have shown, and he's realized that that when we're able to expose children to 
different cultures and different um, ways of life and, and different children from, from various areas of the world, the more um, we have a chance to alleviate the, the problem of prejudice and racism as they get older. So the idea of Empatico is to link classrooms in various areas of the world studying common curriculum. So for example, you could have a class hooked up uh, from uh, Brooklyn to a classroom in Nigeria and, and, and uh, you know, maybe the topic is geography or something in common uh, to the curriculum. And what happens inevitably is, is the children, as they get into these virtual groups and discussions, they begin asking one another about whether or not they like sports. And the kid in Nigeria might say, yes, I love football or soccer. Um, and the kid in Brooklyn might say, I play hockey. Oh, what's that? And what are you eating for lunch? And, and they begin to realize, wow, this kid is so similar to, to me. Like, why would I have suspicion or hate? towards people in other areas of the world. Um, so that's a project that I really care about and uh, we're working on finding a leader for them. But I, I bring that up as one of many, many examples of initiatives that are rooted in empathy and understanding the other and, not, and, and therefore um, eliminating the, the, the uh, negative opportunity to be suspicious of the other. Does um, empathy tie into negotiations with companies and people? Um, for instance, how do negotiations with corporations or governments or individuals differ? I think negotiations is something that uh, permeates all of our lives and it boils down to the same principles. So the way I look at it is um, we're constantly, and it doesn't have to be adversarial, um, whether we realize it or not, <laughs> we're constantly um, negotiating with our spouses, with our children, with our friends, with our with our business partners, <laughs> you know, with the corporates that we're serving. And again, you're right. The one common theme is I find that the most effective way to negotiate is to first of all uh, use the concept of intersectionality finding common ground. Um, we can all agree on this, this, and this. I compliment you for caring about these various issues. Uh, I can completely understand why they're important to you. The following uh, issues might be at cross purposes of what I'm trying to achieve, but I completely understand why they're important to you. And um, I'd be willing to compromise on, on these two points, which wouldn't be in my favor if you provide me this. But I think the old fashioned notion that you slam your fist on, on, on the table and, and it's a zero sum game and uh, you, know, you don't win unless you crush the other person um, is a notion that, um, that, that's gone the way of the dodo bird and, and, and I don't think it ever really was successful. Anything ego driven um, any win-lose kind of mentality. I think we've realized as we evolve as a society um, doesn't serve anyone very well. Really, that's a very, very important point. Now you've talked uh, to us a little bit about the Black North Initiative and how it came to be. Um, tell us about 
the huge event that you just put together, which I think, because you're on the board for Black North, but you're on several other boards. And didn't you just do a, an event where you combine the forces? So we've combined forces. We've uh, issued a statement, which I'd be happy to share with everybody um, about our joint solidarity against anti-Semitism, anti-Black racism, and all forms of racism and hate. Um, and we're planning to have um, uh, a, a big event where we, uh, where we dive deeper into the issues and develop um, deliverables in terms of how both of our communities can work together and be educated against um, the tendency to off-the-cuff express tropes uh, on either side, which, which, which both communities at, at certain points may not even realize that they're saying things that are harmful. Um, but as the Supreme Court of Canada said years ago in a case uh, called Keekstra, where a Calgary high school teacher was teaching out um, Holocaust denial, the fact that the Holocaust didn't happen, the, the gas chambers, um, the Holocaust didn't begin with the gas chambers. The Holocaust began with words. And these are the chilling facts of hate and hate speech and hate propaganda. So we need to ratchet down all the incitement and the, and the hateful talk that we see in society today. So yeah. the event you're envisioning or that you just had, it's virtual or are you, going, are you looking uh, immediately forward to an in-person? Well, we're planning virtual and uh, we'll, we'll give you information that you could share with your, your audience. Um, and the reason we're planning virtual is because we don't want to delay we want to have this um, uh, in the coming, likely in the coming weeks. Mm. But but we're oh. having a plan. We're having a planning session uh, actually tomorrow to discuss the the particulars. We will have a number of very uh, high profile influencers who bring a lot of wisdom to the table, and uh, we're hoping this will only be the beginning. And what are you going to call it? Do you know yet? Uh, we haven't decided. No, we oh. haven't decided yet. Yeah. Okay. And it's global. It'll be global. It, it, it's a global movement, absolutely. And in fact, my my mentor Erwin Kotler, who's the international chair of the Raoul Wallenberg Center, whose board I chair, um, was recently appointed uh, the envoy for uh, anti-Semitism and Holocaust remembrance by our uh, prime minister. Um, so, uh, and and his role really has taken on a, a very a very global. Uh, nature to it. And um, so we're, we're looking forward to hopefully having a very positive impact. On How do you get different countries interested? Well, we have been talking, uh, for example, south of the border with our good friends here in the United States. And uh, there seems to be uh, a real welcoming of this kind of uh, opportunity. Um, Professor Kotler in his international role uh, is speaking to uh, envoys from countries all around the world. Um, so I think that when you're able to connect on, on an issue that's so important and that seems so reasonable, um, what we've been finding is that the level of enthusiasm is, is tremendously high. Yeah. Um, I understand that you put out a report called the Rosenzweig Report. Mm -hmm. um, tell, tell our listeners about it. 
Right. Um, so in 2006, I began thinking about the inequities of women in business and women in leadership roles. And I decided that uh, I'd look at, just to get a feel for the percentage of women in top roles here in Canada, that I'd look at the 100 largest publicly traded companies here in Canada, and all of the public companies need to disclose the compensation of their CEO, their CFO, and uh, at least the next three highest paid executive officers. So essentially, I was looking at a pool of the 500 top jobs in Canada. And uh, I decided to count one by one how many women are amongst these 500 roles. And what I found out was, I thought the number would be low. I didn't realize that the number would be that low, that the uh, percentage of women in top jobs in 2006 was 4.6%. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that caused me to make a commitment from that, from that moment on that each and every year I would, I would hold up a mirror to corporate Canada and present the facts as they are. I list each of the companies, which companies have women, who, who they are, who fell off from previous years. We slice and dice the stats, uh, but it's all data driven. It's not opinion driven. And um, I've been doing that for the past 16 years. And what I've been doing for the past number of years is um, at, the, at the front of these reports, um, bring in allies who can participate in the report and provide comments and endorsements and words in order to amplify the discussion. So uh, the past reports have had um, contributions and, and participation and comments and quotes from people ranging from uh, our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to Van Jones to Deepak Chopra, Lisa Milano, I mean, you name it, Andrew Yang, on and on and on. And um, uh, the more of these that we, that we bring in, the more of these um, influencers from various walks of life, the, the greater the amplification of the discussion, which is the, uh, the, the, the key objective for us. And this year, we, um, we, we had a little bit more of an emphasis on, on BIPOC, and as you might imagine, um, and BIPOC women. And, and as you might imagine, the number of BIPOC women is already, even though the numbers are incredibly low already, we've, we've, the good news is 16 years later, the numbers have doubled. The bad news is we're still under 10%. And, and, oh. as, you might, and as you might imagine, uh, BIPOC women is, 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 is within that pool of small, uh, the small pool of women, the number is even um, much worse. Oh, it's, it, it's so wonderful that you're working on it, but it's a bit discouraging, yes? Mm -hmm. It is. Because uh, I was going to ask you about women and diversity in top levels of corporations, because how do you think women and people of color can better navigate careers when they're moving up the ladder? And, and how do you address this in your own executive search business? Well, there needs to be greater and greater systemic change. That's, that's extremely important. Um, there needs to be more of an understanding of childcare issues and, and the like. Um, from a recruitment perspective, there's a number of methods that can be used. For example, the Rooney Rule is one of them, um, meaning uh, you need to present at least one diverse candidate in, in your candidate pools, no matter what. Um, 
There is something called diversity recruitment, which is a more sophisticated approach to recruitment. It's not about making um, compromises, but if a client says they absolutely need to hire uh, a woman for a specific role, there's ways to specifically do diversity recruitment. But at the end of the day, we need, we need greater recognition of some of the systemic issues that are holding people back, whether it's uh, women uh, or people of color um, or indigenous peoples, whatever it might be, so that we could create greater diversity around the table and greater inclusion. It's not only about diversity, it's about inclusion. It's, it's one thing, uh, I think it was a Netflix um, uh, executive who said, it's one thing to uh, be invited to the dance. It's another, it's another thing to be on the dance floor dancing, right? Um, uh -huh. So, and, and there's a business case to be had. Logic would only dictate that um, uh, if you have 10, 70 year old white guys around the board table deciding, um, you know, what to do with a certain consumer project, uh, product strategically, um, I think a lot would be missing. <laughs> uh, uh -huh. If you, the, the greater diversity you have around the boardroom table, the greater the creativity, the, the more ideas you will have and the greater ideas and the greater the creativity, it stands to reason that the greater the bottom line results. Yeah, that yeah. stands, that really does stand to reason, especially on the part of consumers. Most of, most consumers are women of exactly. all races and creeds. Um, you've published a lot of papers and you've published on the future of technology and the future of transportation. Where do you see those going? Wow, uh, I mean, I, there's so many different ways I can answer those questions. But mm -hmm. one, uh, one, one project I'm, uh, I'm a senior partner in is is the Hyperloop uh, Transportation Technologies project, um, and uh, and and uh, Ken's involved a little bit in that as well. Uh, basically, Elon Musk came up with this idea to um, develop a new form of transportation, and uh, essentially. It's, uh, it's magnetics um, and air pressure. Um, used to be back in the day, people would send a letter from one floor to another in an office tower through this chute. It's the exact same technology. It's not a new technology. Um, and, uh, but it's just being applied to the transportation sector. The cool thing about it is it's um, completely environmentally friendly. The thing would go the speed of sound. <laughs> so you could probably go from LA to uh, San Francisco through this hyperloop system, should it ever be developed in like a half an hour. Um, oh. So, so the, um, the implications uh, for the price of real estate and where we live and, and the benefits for the environment, it's just incredible. They say it'll be, you know, of course, weatherproof uh, because it'll be in a, It'll be an enclosed structure. It'll, you know, they say it'll be the safest mode of transportation and less expensive to build as opposed to high-speed trains. So that's one thing. But I think just generally we're facing a potential crisis um, in terms of where technology is going moving forward. There's a lot of exciting technologies out there and uh, artificial intelligence and robotics, for example, are... Um, are going to really transform our world in so many positive ways, but it will also eliminate a number of jobs. And then the question is, if that were to happen, like if I have, if I have a child 
who's not sure what they want to do with their lives and they're fortunate enough to be able to go to university, what should they be studying? And my perspective is um, AI and robotics will be overtaking, and, and they already have in, in, in many respects, the human mind. Um, so where do we pivot? Where, you know, where can the humans differentiate themselves? And I say that the one place humans will always be able to differentiate themselves is their soul, their heart, um, their emotions. And that, that reads into areas like areas of creativity. So I feel that a philosophy degree, which I happen to have done, so it might sound self-serving, but an arts degree might in the future be more important than, um, than a science degree. Um, so we need to think you know, more artistically perhaps as, as a way to differentiate and to still have command over machines moving forward. So that's one, one way I would answer your question, but I mean, there's so many different things that, uh, that I could discuss when it comes to technology. Oh, and I know, and you're rapidly becoming a super, super power when it comes to understanding technology. And I, I love that answer that you just gave because uh, I do on occasion worry about the artificial intelligence because i have heard people discussing it musk among among them elon musk totally understands how they can replace human beings pretty rapidly and i know he talked about building that hyperloop in los angeles as a test and like to get to the from the valley to the airport mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in a couple seconds or minute or whatever yeah yeah it's pretty it's pretty crazy so we're, we're not at all involved with uh with with elon um what he had done, as I understand it, is he did a white paper um, describing what this would look like. And, and he said, you know, I'm busy with other stuff such as Tesla and SpaceX and whatever, but I, I challenged someone out there to go out and commercialize this. And so there have been a handful of leading businesses in this field um, really trying to push it. And uh, one of them is, is the organization that I'm, that, that I'm helping right now. Fabulous. Yeah. And, but in view of what you said about the arts, we discovered that you are a successful songwriter also. Now, has this always been a sideline for you? Is it a hobby? Do you have some songs that are published and recorded? What, what do you do with it? So um, it's just a joy of mine. I've never really pursued it uh, at, at all professionally. Uh, I just do it because I find it fulfilling and often I'll write songs as a gift to uh, to people I love, so I've written a song for every member of my family, um, oh. for my wife and three kids. Um, typically, on on occasions where uh, it would be more um, normal, let's say, to to give a speech, uh, instead I've surprised my family members with with songs that I've written. There's one on YouTube you could check out um, oh. if you if you go on YouTube and you you type in Jay Rosenzweig and, and Aeon Clark, or even if you type in Jay Rosenzweig, it'll probably come up pretty, pretty quickly. It's a song called Right Here that I perform live for my son. And you could see his reaction as I, uh, as I performed the song for him. It was really quite a special moment oh. Oh, for uh, both of us. And he ran up on the stage and he hugged me. This is like five years ago or so. Um, but also if you look on uh, 
Spotify or, or iTunes or Apple Music and you search uh, my name, you'll, you'll see there's a handful of songs. Oh, bravo. I will. I'm sure our listeners will too. Yeah. Um, on another note, uh, the latest greatest thing we've heard about right now are NFTs. Can you explain what they are to our listeners and tell us what you foresee for them? Yeah, so I'm certainly not the expert on, on NFTs, but, but essentially it's, it's digital art. It's digital art, which, which is stamped. Um, it's, it's on the blockchain and it's something that people can buy and, and have bragging rights about owning because it's all locked and you typically get a coin related to that or a token. Um, and it's kind of the future of, uh, of art in a lot of ways, but it can be applied to all kinds of different things. You could get an NFT related to a LeBron James game winning shot. Um, it could be- What would that uh, look like? It would be like the video of LeBron James taking the shot, but you have ownership of it. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of bragging rights related to that. The younger generations relate much better to the idea, of course, of being able to own something digitally, whereas we might think, well, I could just go on YouTube and, uh, and see that very same shot, but you don't have the ownership of it. And it, it can then in turn be sold again. And it's like, um, it's all the rage right now. It's a very, would one very person cool. be the on only owner or would several people own it? I think, I think what you can do is sell different pieces of the same art. It's a whole, it's a whole thing. Um, and, uh, it's like, I say, it's all the rage right now and people are making tons of money off of it. Yeah. There's this guy Beeple who, uh, just sold, um, uh, an NFT for like $69 million. And I think either Christie's or Sotheby's uh, was involved in the sale. So uh, once that happened, we all realized this is real because if the traditional auction houses are now getting involved, you know, this thing is real. Yeah. One, one of the analogies that I kind of use is, uh, you know, cause it seems so bizarre. Why would I want to own something digitally? First of all, you can now with your phone, you can like flick it onto the wall, right? With a projector and say, hey, check out this cool piece that I have. I'm the exclusive owner for it. And it's stamped and it's 100% locked that it's yours. Um, but um, it's like someone once told me, you know, I used to love physical pictures, physical photos. And, and I would do these uh, photo albums and I had such great joy and like, holding the physical picture. If someone would have told that individual 30 years ago, you know, one day you're going to have a phone, you're going to take a picture and photo albums are not really going to be much of a thing. And you're just going to show people on your phone, the various digital photos. He would have said probably at that time, like that doesn't sound good at all. Like, I don't think that'll ever be a thing. Well, that's a thing, right? So yeah. we're just going to next levels of, of, of digital. Um, and, and that's, that's the way our world is going right now. Mm. But it's really exciting. If you, if you look at uh, offline, I'll show you some NFTs if you like. I mean, some of, the, some of these NFTs are absolutely beautiful because they can be three-dimensional. There could be movement to it. There could be music, original music put to it. So there's something very, very special about this new trend that's emerging. Wow. Yeah. 
Now, some of our listeners may not yet be aware of one of the newest social network platforms called Clubhouse. And I know you're quite active with it now. And can you describe some of the benefits of listening and participating in this new audio only platform? Yeah, so Clubhouse uh, was brought to my attention uh, a number of months ago. Uh, a number of my friends were trying to sign me up and eventually I relented. And um, I actually find it extremely fascinating. It's kind of the next level of social media. So right now you have like Instagram and Twitter and uh, Facebook where uh, you're able to uh, direct message people and your posts are able to have text, you type text, et cetera. But the idea of Clubhouse is there's no DMing, there's no typing, there's no text, you can't post anything. What it is is um, it's an audio um, oriented social media platform where people are able to talk about various subjects. So you can have rooms, you can have clubs which have rooms, but basically with, with a stage, with people in the audience. And um, there's something extremely authentic about that and spontaneous. And cool thing is like people randomly pop into rooms if they happen to be checking on their phone and they see someone interesting might be in a room or whatever. So it's, um, I find it to be very, very cool and, and, a, and a great opportunity to meet people um, in whatever capacity you're interested, including including in business. And I find that it came at the perfect time because I think there's a lot of people who felt isolated and lonely during COVID and this gave them an opportunity to uh, be able to either listen and or uh, participate in discussions. And it filled, it, it filled people's days and it really filled a void. And the thing's really, really taken off. It's really quite amazing. It's only by invitation right now, but I believe it, it'll soon go public and there's already millions of people on the app and there will be gazillions when it goes public. <laughs> it yeah. sounds like a compendium of all the social media platforms. You know, in a way, but you're forced to speak. That's the only way you can communicate. There's no, there's no other way to communicate, which I think is pretty cool. That is cool because yeah. so many people have given up speaking at all. Yes, it's true. Younger people don't make phone calls. It's all texting and, you know, this maybe this will bring people's voices to each other. In a it also it also breeds skills, facilitation skills, moderating skills, um, thinking on your feet. Um, you have 20 seconds to pitch your business or 20 seconds to describe your background. Um, so it breeds certain kinds of skills, which I think younger generations um, sorely need. And you said you're setting up a club? Yeah, so I haven't, I haven't activated in the sense of going live to, uh, to, to, to do a room with it, um, but um, I, I set up a room kind of as a placeholder called the Rosenzweig Room. And um, essentially, uh, and it's described, the, the club is described, the, the idea is uh, to have an open forum for all the various things that I find interesting, discussions of human nature, philosophy, human rights, uh, team building, investment, impact investment, et cetera. Um, so I'll activate it in due time, but um, right now it's a placeholder and I'm building a membership uh, for it. I guess the best way to build a membership for it is to do rooms, but 
Um, well, I, I'm looking forward to it. I hope you build it soon because I would love to be a part of it. I'm That's sure. That's great. Yeah, and I'm sure people in business and philosophy and people interested in philosophy and human rights and all that you bring to the table would be interested. And on that note, we would like to thank our exceptional guest today, Jay Rosenzweig. It's been so enlightening to hear from you today. We hope our listeners will feel the same way. I'm sure they will. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And maybe you can come back again with yeah. some more new insights into all these exciting new platforms and in, inventions and share with us again some updates maybe, huh? Is Anytime there, you like. Okay, is there any place that our listeners should look for you just in Clubhouse or do you want them to look in LinkedIn or on your website or what, what do you, where do you send people? At any platform, uh, depending on uh, you know wh where their areas of interest are. Of course, LinkedIn is more uh, business-oriented. Uh, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse for sure. Um, and I also have a website, a personal website, um, jayrosenswag.com. So it's my name.com, no space. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can see more about my passions and work on, on, on that. Thank you, Jay. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you so, so much. much. My been, pleasure. Thank you. It's been our pleasure as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? <laughs> I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this, you can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating $1 million in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? 
Our mission is to help one million fulfilled women each achieve one million dollars in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.